The reading tonight is from Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 17. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Well, I wonder how many of you watched the Brits on Tuesday night. Uh, it was apparently the 40th anniversary. The Brits have been going longer than Malcolm and Carrie have been mission partners at P's and G's. Uh, but the Brits used to be uh, just hilarious to watch because all sorts of things went horribly wrong. Uh, but this year, there were two standout performances, one by Stormzy and one by Dave. This is a picture of Dave. It was, if you haven't watched either of these performances, uh, this one was just amazing, where this rapper called Dave uh, played the piano and rapped for about seven minutes opposite another keyboard player, and the, the keyboard in between them was a video screen full of 3D imagery uh, that descended into... I mean, it made playing that thing looked pretty poor, really, Lucy. I mean, it was just <laughs> phenomenal. Not that you are poor, but it made playing that. It was just amazing. Look it up on YouTube. It was just incredible. And then Stormzy came on at the end, and he just went from performance to performance to performance, and it finished up with about, I don't know, 90 people on stage. And I texted Mark Cameron, our worship di director, and said, Stormzy has really set the bar quite high for Easter Sunday this year. Uh, because our hope was to, to put together a sort of orchestral choral extravaganza for Easter Sunday. And uh, Mark texted back and simply said, yep. Because Stormzy had sort of set the bar there in terms of, it, it finished with the whole uh, group, 90 of them, being rained on. So they had water pouring down from the ceiling and they just finished absolutely drenched and singing. And it was just a phenomenal performance. But one thing struck me about both Dave's uh, performance, uh, where uh, in the middle of it he called uh, the Prime Minister racist, which was quite controversial, and then, maybe not, and then uh, also Stormzy. Both their performances really were really, really angry. They were what they were because both Stormzy and Dave are incredibly angry. Their music often expresses the anger that they have felt growing up as young black men in South London. Both of their performances, both of their songs, both of their raps were characterized by anger, but also now their music was characterized by anger, but also their music was characterizing them. 
Their music, you see, is characterized by their experiences, and their music also creates their character. It's part of the power of music. Music shapes our mood. Music lifts our emotions. Music bypasses our minds. I've lost count of the number of people who have perhaps been grieving, and they've, they've held it all together until they've come into a church service like this. And all of a sudden, we've started to sing a song, and their defenses have been got under. Suddenly, their heart has been unleashed. They've been broken open by the music. The music just bypasses intellect and bypasses rationale and gets straight to people's hearts, straight to people's feelings, and straight to people's emotions. That's what music does. If you've got an Alexa or a Siri or whatever device that's actually listening to you, rather than providing you music that you can listen to, you can change how you're feeling by saying, Alexa, play happy music. And suddenly as your Alexa gives forth happy music, your, your spirits soar. Things begin to look a bit different, even as you're eating breakfast. Now, worship music has the same power. Worship music, and one of the reasons that we gather together to sing and to pray and to read the Bible and remind each other who God is and what God has done, worship music is supposed to be characterizing. It's not just characterized by the different lyrics that we sing or the songs and the, the melodies that we sing. But one of the reasons that we sing together, as Leslie Penny was telling us a couple of weeks ago, is that our characters might be formed. So that we are characterized by the songs that we sing. We are characterized by what we do in church week by week. We're having our characters shaped and formed by God's word, his story, and his kingdom, rather than the stories and the values of the culture and the world around us. It's one of the reasons why we're, we're quite careful about the songs that we sing or don't sing here in church. You might not believe that, but we actually uh, critique it on a Monday morning, and we're fairly strict, and we say, well, that song, the tune may be great, but are the words true? Do the words resonate with people? Are the words actually taken from the Bible? Or are they just nice words that help us make, uh, where we feel nicer because we sing them, but they're not actually based in reality on what God says in the Bible? One of the reasons that Paul wrote these letters to the churches in the New Testament was to remind them that they were to be communities whose allegiance was to Jesus and not to Caesar, the Roman emperor. We were praying for the people in uh, the Arab world who become Christians, uh, some of whom already in the last 10 years have been prepared to give their lives to become modern-day martyrs. You think of those uh, Christians who were killed by ISIS, just lined up uh, on a beach and just beheaded one by one, and then that video put on YouTube. And that, it's that sort of allegiance that, that Paul was writing to these churches and saying, your allegiance is to Jesus. It's not to, to Caesar. It's not to the Roman Empire. It's to the kingdom that you now belong to. But how does that happen, and what does it mean in practice? Well, one of the clues is found in tonight's passage that Becky read for us a few moments ago, Colossians chapter 3 and verses 12 to 17. In the opening 
section of what we call chapter 3 in Colossians, Paul has been outlining, he's been describing what it means to belong to this thing called the church. Now, churches come in different shapes and sizes. We're a church of about a thousand people. That church somewhere in Turkey is a church of about six. Probably that church is an amazing church to belong to. I'm not asking you to comment about this church. But Paul is saying this is what a church should look like. This is what it means to belong to the kingdom of God. And this is what it means to belong to a community that expresses the kingdom of God. And in the first 11 verses of what we call chapter 3, he reminds these early Christians what it is to belong to Jesus, what Jesus has done for them. And then our reading begins with a very important word at the start of verse 12, therefore, therefore. And Paul is saying, in the light of everything that I've written before this, in Colossians chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 2 and the first half of Colossians chapter 3, therefore, in the light of all this, you should live this way. Paul's just described this new community, this thing called church. In verse 11, the verse before where our reading begins, he said that in the church there is neither no Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. It's his version that he's writing to this church in Colossae of what he said in Galatians chapter 3, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And what Paul is saying is that what God has done in the creation of this thing called the church is something that is unique. From now on, there are no national or traditional, tribal or geographical, social or cultural, gender or ethnic divisions between Christians. So we are all now, whether we like it or not, if we call ourselves part of the church... We are all now brothers and sisters. Look around at the people around you. Just, you know, just sneak a look in front to your left and to your right. This is the lot that you're going to be stuck with for eternity. Now, don't worry, they're going to be transformed, and so are you. And they're going to be different then, and so are you. And there'll be millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of people. So you won't have to sit next to the person that you're sitting next to this evening, probably in heaven or for eternity. But this thing called the church is unique. There is nothing like it on planet Earth. Where there's no tribal or geographical or gender or national differences between us, but we are all one in Christ Jesus, Paul says. And there is just nothing like the church on the face of the earth. And Paul says, now you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now I want you to live life in a certain way. In Galatians, he describes it in chapter 5, verses 22 to 26, in what we call the fruit of the Spirit, the character of Jesus being produced in those of us who claim to be Christ followers. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, etc., here, he uses not the same words, but very similar words to describe what it is for a community that says it belongs to the kingdom of God, that it belongs to Jesus, what it means for us to live life out with each other. And so in verses 12 to 14, Paul describes firstly seven layers of clothing. 
He says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other, forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love. This is one of my favorite episodes of Friends. It's the one, if you remember, where uh, Joey goes and gets all Chandler Bing's clothes, including his underpants, and he puts every single item that Chandler has got on, on top of each other. And uh, it gets really dodgy when he starts to do lunges, um, and, and Chandler just goes, ah, and then they fall out with each other. Now, layers are really important living in Edinburgh. If you haven't lived here very long, you won't have discovered that yet. But if you're, a sec- if you're a student, maybe in their second term, you're beginning to discover that layers are really important. And layers are actually what we take for granted in living in Edinburgh. You just get used to putting layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of clothing. We had, uh, had forgotten, we'd been living here for about five or six years, and we went down to South Manchester to see my parents where they were living when they were still alive. And uh, we went into Manchester, and we suddenly realized that everybody around us on, on the tram in Manchester, because they have loads of trams in Manchester and they work, and, and they take you to places that you want to go. Um, <laughs> we realized that we were sitting there in this tram going into Manchester, and we had about four or five layers on and we had the kids they had layers on and then we looked around us and people were in shorts and t-shirts in Manchester and our kids were not in t-shirts and shorts they were in layer after layer and so we started stripping off layers over our off our kids until they looked comparatively normal we get used to wearing layers of clothing Paul says if you are to live the life that God wants you to live, you are to clothe yourselves with these layers. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, and love. Paul says clothe yourselves with them. Literally, the word means drape, surround, embody yourself with these characteristics. It's it's the Colossian version of the fruit of the Spirit. So that when people see a group of Christians, they see compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, and love. That's how people should know that we belong to Jesus. Not by the purity of our doctrine, not by how loud the songs are that we sing, But they see in us the characteristics of Jesus. I wonder as you think about your life, as you think back over the last seven days, as you think back with the people that you spend most of your time with who are not yet Christians, would they describe you as somebody who was a person of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, and love? I was thinking about that this morning as Libby was preaching on this passage, and I was thinking back um, about, because I was leading this morning's service, 
And I thought back to an incident that occurred on my way uh, to church this morning. If, you, if you've been through Stockbridge, where we live, um, Scottish Gas are, are putting a whole new uh, mains, and it's going to be closed for about six months. And uh, there's, there's a one-way system in operation in Stockbridge. You can only go one way. The clue's in the word, one-way system. And I was going the right way, one way, when a cyclist came towards me the other way. And I flashed him, and he looked at me, and I flashed him again, and he kept coming, and I flashed him again, and he kept coming. And eventually we slowed, and I sort of wound the window down, and I said, that's how old my car is. Um, <laughs> and I said, it's one way. And he looked at me and said, I'm only going one way. And I must confess that the look that I shared with him was not one of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, and love. And I was really struck when Libby was preaching. I thought, what happens if that guy actually was then to turn up in church and recognize me this evening or this morning as the person who had greeted him in the one-way system in Stockbridge? I'm not sure whether he would have described me as somebody who had the fruit of the Spirit. How does that happen? How does the fruit, the character of Jesus, be reproduced in you and me? Well, Paul gives us a clue in the next verse, verse 16. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. Eugene Peterson's translation of that particular verse is this. Let the message of Christ have the run of the house. Give it plenty of room in your lives. Literally, let the word of Christ take up permanent residence in your life. The reality is that you and I, every single day, see 5,000 adverts every day. 5,000 adverts every day. Messages telling us how to live. Messages that want to shape how we live our lives. Messages telling us what we should put value and worth on. I don't know about you, but maybe you've watched television and you've been struck that often the adverts that appear in between the programs are better than the programs that we're actually watching. Have you ever been struck by that? There's actually a reason why that is the case, because often more money is spent on the adverts than is spent on the programs that we watch in between the adverts. The most expensive was one that Chanel, the perfume company, made with Nicole Kidman. It apparently cost them $33 million to make that advert. That is how much Chanel wanted you to buy their perfume. $33 million. So it's no wonder that that advert that had Nicole Kidman sort of flitting through Paris, looking Nicole Kidman-like, was actually often more impressive than the programs around which it was framed. So my simple question for you and for me this evening is, if we're getting 5,000 adverts a day thrown at us, by contrast, how much are we reading the Bible? Because if the Bible, if this book is supposed to shape how we live and lead our lives, if this book is supposed to tell us how God wants us to live, 
If this book is supposed to inform us what we are to think of as important and valuable and worthwhile, how come often this gets more airtime in my life than this? And if we're seeing 5,000 adverts a day telling us how to live, then maybe we should redress the balance and spend a bit more time in this rather than in this. Get a Bible app for your phone or tablet. If you haven't, uh, don't know what one is, look, get the U version. It's the best one. Um, it gives you a whole range of different versions of the Bible. Read the Bible. Listen to the Bible. You can download the Bible. You can hear David Suchet read the Bible in soft, melodious tones to you. Kathy, my wife, often goes uh, into work, driving in, in, into work, listening to David Suchet read the Bible to her. It's a miracle she doesn't fall asleep while she's listening to David Suchet driving the car in. So read the Bible, but also look at what Paul says next. I, again, confession, I had not seen what this verse says until this week. Now, I've been a Christian for 40 years. I've been preaching for about 30 years. I had not spotted what this verse actually says until this week. There's a confession for you. And then I suddenly saw it in a different light. What Paul says is, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another. And I thought, yeah, yeah, the Bible, that teaches. We teach and admonish one another as we look at the Bible. So when I'm preaching, I'm teaching, I'm admon I don't do it very often, I admonish. As I open the Bible, the Bible admonishes me. That's not actually what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't actually say that. The Bible says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So we are to teach and admonish each other, yes, through the Bible, but we teach and admonish one another as we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So when you gather in a place like this on a Sunday, we're not simply singing to ourselves. Well, that's partly what we're doing. We're telling ourselves who God is and what God has done. We're not simply singing to God, although that's part of what we're doing. We're not reminding God who he is because he knows who he is. But we're reminding ourselves of who God is and we're giving praise to God for who he is. But also something else is happening. We are teaching and admonishing each other as we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I had never seen that before. Never seen it. 40 years as a Christian. But I'd never seen it as clearly as I saw it this week, that we teach and admonish one another as we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We remind each other 
The illustration I used this morning was uh, uh, Ian Wright on Desert Island Discs. I was listening to that this week. It's an amazing episode of Desert Island Discs where Ian Wright, the former footballer, uh, breaks down and cries four or five times uh, during the 45 minutes. But he describes his relationship with the Arsenal fans. When they were playing away from home, he describes how actually hearing the Arsenal fans singing support for the team changed the Arsenal players' perspective of wherever they were playing. Because in these words he said, Ian Wright said, we realised that somebody had our backs. And it changed the way in which we played away from home. That's part of what we're doing when we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We're saying to each other, I've got your back. I'm there for you. When we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to Malcolm and to Carrie this evening, we're saying, we've got your back. We've got your back. In your reaching out to the Muslim world, we've got your back. We teach and admonish one another as we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's not these guys singing to us. We're singing to each other. And we're teaching each other. We're encouraging each other as we do so. And as we sing these words to each other, and remember the adverts and the whole of our society and the whole of our culture is, is telling us one thing. And that, that slide comes from a, a software company in California. And it's quite chilling we want to turn customers into fanatics, products into obsessions, employees into ambassadors, and brands into religions. These guys are serious about it. So if they're serious about it, why aren't we as serious about our message? Which is not lived just on billboards, but it's actually lived through us, through our lives. We are shaped, we are formed, we are characterized. Our characters are formed by the words that we sing and hear. I love this quote that I came across this week from the theologian Walter Brueggemann. He said this, What is needed is imaginative, liturgic world-making that enacts a world more credible than the world of empire. What does that mean? That means that the vision that we get of what life could be like as we come together Sunday by Sunday should be so inspiring, so dramatic, so amazing that we go out from this building wanting to live lives differently. That because we've taught and admonished each other through the words that we've sung and the words that we've prayed and the words that have been preached, that we leave from this place with a desire to make the world a different place. And that the world that we belong to, the kingdom of God, is more credible, more beautiful, more attractive, more dynamic, more life-changing than all the cultures and all the messages that those 5,000 adverts a day give us. It's the idea that was there in The Greatest Showman. It's the reason, one of the reasons why that film was so popular. Because song after song was proclaiming a world, was declaring a world that could be different, that could be better. 
That's why Hugh Jackman sang. Because every night I lie in bed, the brightest colours fill my head. A million dreams are keeping me awake. I think of what the world could be, a vision of the one I see. A million dreams is all it's going to take. A million dreams for the world we're going to make. That's why it captivated people. Because there was this disconnect with how the world is as we see it around us, between a world that could be a kinder, more beautiful, more loving place. And then finally, Paul says, you live these lives of worship. You live these lives of difference. You live these lives that demonstrate what Jesus means to you by verse 17, by living lives that are characterized by thanks. He says this in verse 17. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. There are many words that could be used to describe the society that we live in, but thankful is not one of them. Cynical, apathetic, dissatisfied, corrupt, Greedy, disappointing, dissatisfied. Those are some of the words that may characterize our culture. But you wouldn't think that our society is one where people are spontaneously thankful. Paul says that's one of the characteristics that will characterize the followers of Jesus that we will be people who are thankful people. A writer, Mary Jo Leddy, sums it like this. She said, we are held captive by dissatisfaction. As a consequence, ingratitude is ingrained within every social class within the culture of money. It's how shape, how sin takes shape within us, conditions us and holds us captive. You see, our society, our economy, works on the theory that we want more, that we want better, that we want newer, that we want faster things. If everybody in our society, if everybody in our culture just took a step back and went, yeah, I'm pretty happy with what I've got, now I'm not going to buy anything else, our economy would just plummet because it's predicated upon the idea that we are dissatisfied with what we've got that we want more we want better we want newer we want faster things Paul tells the Colossian church and he tells us that we are to be characterized by thanksgiving and that characterization of thanksgiving isn't just to be in buildings like this you see, Paul doesn't let us off the hook. He says, whatever you do, whatever you do, wherever you are, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. So wherever we go, whatever we're doing, we are to mirror the majesty of the maker. There's a phrase that Libby used a couple of weeks ago. Your life and my life is to mirror the majesty of the maker. 
And that's what it means for us to live lives of worship. So that we come and we worship in a building like this. And we sing songs together. And we teach and admonish each other through hymns and psalms and spiritual songs. We hear the Bible explained. We hear the Bible hopefully applied. And we want to go out of this place inspired to live a different sort of life. With the life of God, the Spirit of God living in us and through us. And that as we go, we go clothed with love and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and all those seven layers, humility, forgiveness, and love. We go out clothed with those things, but we go out and live lives that are thankful. What would it be tomorrow for you to lead, for you to live a thankful life, where at the end of Monday, as you look back on Monday tomorrow, the people who'd met you tomorrow go, you know what? I think Ash, he was thankful. I think Lucy was thankful. I think Ailey was thankful. I think Nate was thankful. I think Emily was thankful. That when they thought of you, they thought of somebody who was thankful. Imagine the impact that that would have upon someone's life. At the end of every nine o'clock service that happens in this church, we use written liturgy. It's a more formal, quieter service, but the end is always significant. We say these words. The person who's at the front, whether it's me or Libby or Paul or, or anybody else, we say, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. And the congregation always respond, in the name of Christ, amen. And that's how every service should end. I read these words, with every ending of a service, there should be a sending. With every ending, there should be a sending. What would it mean this week for you to feel as though you have been sent by God? You've been sent by God to that school. You've been sent by God to that university. You've been sent by God to that hospital. You've been sent by God to that kitchen. You've been sent by God to that dining room. You've been sent by God to that coffee shop. You've been sent by God to wherever you will find yourself this week. With every ending, there is a sending.